Hello, Sawona, how's it? Molo, Jambo, and welcome to Every Nation Devon Podcast. We hope this message will inspire you and draw you closer to Christ. Enjoy. Well, I hope you're ready for today's final installment on our series, Disciple Shift. Have you been shifting a few things in your life? All right, let's give it a few stretch, a little bit. Get ready for t- today. Everybody's looking a little bit tense. <laughs> okay, so we've been going through a series called Disciple Shift, where we've been talking about the fact that as we are disciples and we're called to be disciples, there are certain things that need to shift in our lives from point A to point B, uh, from comfort to kingdom with the couch illustration, and from fear to faithful faith with another couch illustration. As you can see, there is no couch today. We're changing it up, moving things a little bit. So we've been talking about moving from a, a, a place of where you are or where it's not where it's supposed to be to where God wants us to be, from a place of faith to a place of faith to a place of, of kingdom to a place of purpose to a place of love and sonship. My goodness, come on, Ayanda. <laughs> Cool. So today we are going to be talking about discipleship from compromise to consecrated. It's going to get a little bit chilly today. Come on, get ready for it. So um, we live in such an interesting world in, in it that uh, we are at what I would consider the height of the social justice movement where we are up in arms about every cause and everything that, you know, like hashtags. You know, hashtag has become a thing. Let me nerd out for a little while and just show, you know, a hashtag is supposed to be used for a computer so that it can create trends. It's not a part of language. But we've made it a part of language that if it's a slogan, if it's something that we need to get behind, hashtag kids, hashtag that, hashtag whatever. Because that's the kind of life that we're living in where we, you know, we are, uh, are going after different causes. And that's not, not necessarily a bad thing. Yes, there is a whole lot of injustice that we face in the world and a whole lot of things that need to change. And uh, we, that's where we find ourselves in, that, in, in this world. And... One of the interesting things about the whole social, social justice movement is the whole area of when it comes to moral center and moral direction. Like, what is the moral center of all these social justice movements that we keep falling, we, we're falling under and going after? Because from, from what I see, that the more, our morality is more driven by democratic morality. If it's trending and everyone's hashtag Ayanda must fall, let me add my two cents bit to it. Ayanda must fall. If, 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 if it changes to Langa tomorrow, let me add because whatever everybody seems to think is correct, therefore I must subscribe to that. So we end up in a place of political correctness where we're always trying to be politically correct and our morals are dictated to by the society that we find ourselves under and by the collective that we find ourselves with. But as Christians and believers, our morality is not governed by that. In, uh, in Leviticus 19 and also in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter 1, 16, uh, God says to us, Be holy for I am holy. Our standard of morality is not what society tells us, but it is holiness, God's holiness, that he has called us to be holy. Holy means to be set apart, to be separate, to be sacred. For some of us, holy is those dishes that are in your room divider back at home that no one gets to touch, that come out during Christmas. They have interesting flowers on them, and then everybody gets to eat with them and enjoy them, And immediately as Christmas has ended, we take them away and we put them back in the room divider and then we just, you know, become in awe of them. Yes, they look good. So that's what holiness is, is that to being set apart, to to be separated and to be removed from the rest of, of, of any other common thing. So that's what our morality is to be based upon. Now, it's quite interesting that actually even as human beings, we 
desire a standard of pure morality. We want examples of pure morality. We look for role models that are absolutely morally upright. How do we know that? Is that when people fall and stumble, the uproar that comes up, how dare you do that? How dare you do that? How dare we point fingers and we get all mad and and everything because you are supposed to be our champion of morality. You are supposed to be the example of what it looks like. And we put standards on people. And and, and please get me right, I'm not trying to justify um, the transgressions and and, and leaders falling. That's all on them. But the idea should be, we shouldn't be so caught up in them falling and we get so indignant and so mad that there's something wrong there, a little bit. Because what, when someone falls, when someone has an indiscretion, I, feel, I believe that it's best to start looking in the inside of us. Let us look inward first. Because God has called us to be holy. He did not say, Wayne, you shall be holy and be the proxy of every nation, Durban's holiness. We are holy for, therefore, we, Wayne is holy, therefore we are holy. Wayne has got a relationship with God, therefore we have a relationship with God, and it's right. And we look to him, he's our champion. But no, it's an invite for every single one of us to be that standard. And it's very easy for us to put these expectations on leaders. Oh, Andre, Andre, you shouldn't say that. You're a leader, man. You're like an area leader. You shouldn't. Where are you going, Andre? Oh, Sobs, I saw you in that place. How can you do such things? We need, we'll, we'll police your morality because you are the champion and the proxy. And then if we flip the script around, what about you? And then we start making concessions for our lack of holiness for our compromises. Now, you see what had happened was, is that my friend was, so I ended up here. (laughs) It's easy to make concessions for our place, for where we are, and it's it's very easy for us to just point fingers at other people. You should keep the standard. You should keep the standard. Hence why we have this prevalent culture that is also coming into the church, this whole cancel culture. You did not keep the moral standard, so therefore you are cancelled. You do not meet it, therefore you can't, you, you can't, you know, you're not, you're not worth of anything. Can I be a little bit icy this morning? What is the Christian worldview, and what is, the, what is supposed to be the Christian point, uh, viewpoint when it comes to people who commit gender-based violence? Are we supposed to take them and put them on an island? How many are we going to keep putting in this island called cancelled? Cancelled, 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 cancelled. The Christian response to sin is never cancel. The right response to sin is repentance and forgiveness. So I know it's a bit you know, a little itchy and all of that because when someone commits an act of sin, they become the, you know, the devil incarnate and in society they need to be taken out to the edge of the village and be stoned. But in all honesty, that's not what God's standard is. God's standard is repentance. That's a little bit of a rabbit hole, but yeah, back to what we're talking about. So God's standard for us is holiness. So today we're going to be talking about moving from a place of compromise to a place of consecration, a place of making excuses for behaviors, a place of having a little bit of Christianity here and a little bit of the world. You know, there's that ad, remember, pull this side, push this side, have a finely balanced life, you know? You know, a little bit of Bible there, a little bit of Twitter or whatever, other thing will form your worldview a little bit there, balanced. We're moving from that place to a place of consecrated, a place of holiness. I know, like right now, there's a little bit of uh, in you that goes holy, yeah? Here, you want us to be like, ah, unos dominos do, ah. <laughs> I, have, I have a little bit of uh, spoiler alert for you. That's not what holiness is. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, stroking a lamb and looking like his neck is just a little bit cracked. 
that's not holiness. <laughs> that's not it. Let's get into some Bible this morning. Uh, we are kicking off from um, 2 Peter 6, verse 1. Um, so a little bit of context to this. This is after Saul, who was the king of Israel, had done his thing, got into a little bit of trouble. The ark of God got lost, and it was moved to this other guy's house. And David takes over, and David restoring everything. He's making sure that the right form of praise and worship is restored into Israel. And that's what David is doing. So we find him here. Uh, bringing back the Ark of, Co- of the Covenant uh, to its rightful place. And it goes like this. David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose with, with all the people who were with him from Bel, that place, uh, to bring up from there the, uh, the Ark of God, which is... Uh, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned in the cherubim. And, when, uh, and, and they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which uh, was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, Ohio, I think, the son of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ohio, I think, Went uh, before the car, before the ark, and David and all the and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. They were singing with lyre and and harp and tambourines, and uh, and cymbals. And when they had come to the uh, to the threshing floor of Nechem, Uzzah put out his hand to the to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down uh, there because of his error, and he died there besides the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had uh, broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of, of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was willing to take the ark of the Lord into the was so David was not willing to take the ark, ark, ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Oban Edom, in uh, that other place. So what we find here is David trying to move the ark of God. The ark of God is an Old Testament representation of the presence of God, and when we read the story. Like, how many of us have this moment of like, ah, God, what are you doing? I mean, like, Uzzah's a nice guy. He's just following instruction. He's taking up the ark from, you know, his father's house into the city of the king, and he's just, you know, making sure that the ark doesn't fall. What are you, what are you doing? Why? Death. I mean, like, not even just a little bit of a spasm, not even a, ah, don't do it. Just straight up. There's a sense of injustice that we feel on the inside, right? There's a sense of that social justice movement coming up on the inside of us. Hashtag God did wrong. There's that feeling that rises up on the inside of us. And uh, I'd like to propose a, 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 a reason for that feeling in every single one of us. Don't worry, I also have it. I'm not standing here and being like all oh, self-righteous and all of that. The reason why we have that feeling is because we do not understand God. We don't understand what just happened. We are like, um, uh, what? No, God I, God, I didn't think you, I didn't know you like that. There's a moment where we, do, we lack to, we, we fail to understand him. Let me give you an example of what just happened here. A, a, a better ex- explanation, rather. The Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be carried by Levites, one. It was never supposed to be carried on a, on a cart. It was supposed to be carried by hand on the shoulders. And then Uzzah carries it on a cart, even though a new cart, it's still wrong. And then he touches it, and he's not a Levite. It is the equivalent Though his actions were noble and kind, his, it is the equivalent of kissing a volcano. Like, come here. Just want to embrace you. 
because it is that dangerous. It is that life-threatening. He just did a dangerous thing. There is consequence to what he's doing. Because why? Because God is holy. Because God is powerful. Because God is set apart. He is the creator of the universe. He is the self-existing one. He does not need oxygen. He does not need carbon. He does not need time. He does not need earth. He does not need water. He does not need to bath or shave or look in the mirror. He does not need anything. He is the basis of all existence. He, he, he's not even on the like, top of the league. He is the league. Everything grows forth from him and all things from him. He is the standard of everything. There is no ruler that we can measure up to measure God. I saw this other um, a funny Facebook post the other day. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people are going to unfollow me on Facebook because I make examples of them. But the post read like this. Um, what did it go? It said, if gay people go to heaven, I will hold God personally accountable. Make of that what you make, but I would love to see somebody holding God personally accountable. Come here, ancient of days. <laughs> Ruler of the universe. Sit down. There's this thing that you just did. You were hypocrite. <laughs> Makes for interesting viewing. Why is it that we feel like, you know, we treat God like that or we view God in that instance? Like I said, we don't understand him. Let me give you an even a, a bigger example. Look at Ezekiel chapter 1 uh, verse, from verse 26. This is, is Ezekiel uh, coming to, you know, when God reveals himself before Ezekiel. So he first sees the vision of the cherubim and the seraphim, and then now he's seeing the, the vision of God in the throne room. And it says, above the expanse, over, the, over their heads, there was the likeness of of a throne in appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness which a man appears and upwards from that had, uh, from what had the appearance of his waist I saw as it were glimmering metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around and downwards from what had the appearance of his waist I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was, bright, there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on, on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell on my face, and I, and I heard the voice of one speaking. So this is Ezekiel trying to explain his encounter with God. He's doing a terrible job, if I might say it myself. Like how many appearances, the likeness. It's, it's like, but it's not. It's, it's the appearance. It's all of, it's not necessarily, no, but it looked like fire. It's not fire. It's like a waste, but it's not waste. It's, it, I, you couldn't put it to words. Language failed him. The dictionary was put and closed. There is no such thing as the thing that he saw. The only proper response that he had was to fall on his face and be like, I can't handle this anymore. That's, what, that's why the angels keep crying out, holy and holy. Have you ever, like, for some of us that watch soccer, and uh, you know when someone scores a goal that is just, like, hard to believe? There's that moment where everyone is just in awe and is like, what just happened? I can't believe it. Now imagine that happening over and over and over and over and over and over again, where you're constantly caught in awe and you're like, oh, what? Huh? Ah, the it's too much for the human brain to process, so he had to look away. And the only way he could describe it was using human terms. The appearance of jasp of sapphire. It looked like a waste. It looked like fire. He used human terms to describe what is holy and what is um, uh, 
ethereal, I think is the right word. So he used human terms to describe that. Now, what the problem is, uh, is that we take our finite knowledge of things and we take that and we place that upon God. So, for instance, if God, if the word says God is loving, we think of the most loving person that you could ever meet, probably your grandmother. The one that snuck you cookies under the carpet, under, under, under the table. The one that makes you like, you know, you know my, my mom. Mm, mm. So she's a grandmother now. When I was a child, I was supposed to eat whatever was put in front of me and finish it. Now she has grandchildren. If they don't feel like wheat picks, I must make eggs. If they don't feel like eggs, I must make toast. And that could all happen in one day, like in one instance. Are we really going to have six breakfast options for this little thing? <laughs> Where I was given one option, you get bread and that's it. Eat that and be satisfied. Be thankful. Or otherwise, you'll be like the children in Ethiopia starving. Eat it up. So our reference of love becomes like the grandmother who's like that. Oh, you don't like that. You can have that. Oh, you don't like that. You can have that. Also, that is love. Okay, let's take that and put it on God. That's how God is. That's how God's meant to love. And then if God is all-powerful, you think about the meanest, strongest person that you could ever think about. And then you take that, you know, like, I don't know, Thor or the biggest gangster in your area, or my thousand, my 20,000 or whatever. And you take that. And you ascribe it to God. Okay, God is all-powerful, therefore he's like this. He's mean, he's very ruthless, he's very egotistical, and all of that. There you go, labeled up on God. And then we think about uh, personal. We think about, you know, I don't know, that one person who's like in awe of you. Everything you say and do is just beautiful. Like, the way you look at the stars, oh, that's so profound. The way you talk about whatever you talk about, oh, that's beautiful, I love that too. Oh, okay, so that's personal. And then we take it and we put it up on God. And then now we approach God with all these different little, you know, human labels and tags. And then we can't fathom someone who is just and loving at the same time. Because no matter how much love you've experienced in your whole entire life, human love has sometimes an absolutely very limited amount of justice. So if God loves me, then justice is, what is this thing? You can't be loving and just at the same time. Not because that God can't, it's because we have put those limitations on him. He can't be all-powerful and personal because people that are all-powerful are self-centered and self-absorbed. And people that are personal are all about me, not about them. So how can he be about his glory and be me, be the apple of his eye? I can't understand it. So when he does this thing, that means that that doesn't make sense. So therefore, God, what is wrong with you? Let me give you an example of how this works. In, in Mark 4, uh, so what happens is Jesus has spent the whole day healing the sick, Raising the dead, I don't know if they, he did raise the dead, but he did that very frequently. So he's healing people, he's feeding people, he's doing all sorts of miracles. And then what happens is, is that he tells his disciples that let's go to the other side. Let's go down to the boat. So Jesus gets him to the boat, and he takes a nap. And as he's taking this nap, then a storm arises, and then the boat is beginning to sink. And they come to him, which is quite interesting. And uh, that's in, in, in verse 38. And they say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? So, let me give you a little, my, my uh, own interpretation of their train of thought. So this guy, who clearly is very powerful, who clearly is very much all-knowing, who's all-present, and all-sufficient, and loves people quite a lot because he spent his whole afternoon healing them. We're sitting here in this boat with him. This boat is, we are about to die right now. We are dying. And he's sleeping. Clearly, he does not care because he's all-powerful. Why is he not doing anything about it? I don't know if 
maybe that's just, it's only me, but like, I probably think that some of us have found ourselves in this position where we question God's character and integrity because of our circumstances. You have said that you are this, so why is this happening? This does not make sense to me. Why am I going through all this pain? Why is this all happening to me? I'd like to put it to you that our lack of understanding of the character and the personhood of God is the reason why we fall into compromise, is the reason why we fall into sin. Because at the end of the day, we're all trying to be, you know, that's why we're all here, you know, trying to be like Jesus. We're trying to walk out our salvation and be transformed into his image. But there's a little problem. There's that when we lack and we don't have a full, clear understanding of who God is, there's something that happens. Uh, let me just try and give you a little example. It's found in 2 Samuel uh, verse, uh, chapter 15. You know, this is Saul, the guy we don't have as much mercy for compared to Uzzah, you know, Saul. Saul, Saul gets all that he deserves. Uzzahashem, guy, I'm sorry for you. So God had given uh, Saul an instruction to go and to, to, into this other place and kill everything that's there. Take no prisoners, kill everything because of their sin. That's right, God killed, okay? He killed Uzzah. If you have a problem with that, it's because you clearly don't understand him. <laughs> so um, verse, nine, verse 9 says, but Saul and the army uh, spared Agag and the best of the sheep and, and, and the cattle the f- and the fat calves and the lambs and everything that was good. The, uh, these, they, uh, these they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was uh, despicable and wicked they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to uh, Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instruction. Uh, Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But, when he, uh, but he was told Saul had gone to Carmel. There he, there he has set up a monument in his own honor, and he has, he has turned and gone down to uh, Gilgad. When Samuel uh, reached him, he said, "The Lord bless." Uh, Saul said, "The Lord bless you. I have carried out uh, the Lord's instructions." But Samuel said, "What is this bleating of sheep in my ear? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear?" But Saul answered, "The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God." but we totally destroyed the rest. So, who made Saul king? Who blessed Saul? Who gave Saul instructions? Now Saul is getting, because of all of this, because Saul was insecure about his position, that he wanted approval from his soldiers, and wanted to be liked by them, he decided to compromise. Let's spare the best. Let's, let, let's not do this. Because he wanted to be known, he wanted to be glorified, he even said, he's even setting up a monument to himself. Because it was all about how, how many followers am I getting? How many likes am I getting? So therefore, he strays away and begins to compromise so that he can get approval. So this is how the way of sin and idolatry works. It is a slow drifting away and making compromises and concessions and all these other things to just move away from what God had called him to. In fact, Saul's acts were acts of rebellion against God and also acts that were questioning God's authority and authenticity. If God had instructed Saul and called Saul to do a certain thing, Saul thought to himself, aye, man, it's not bad. I have kept the best for the Lord. Surely God will appreciate the cattle because God loves sheep, ne? He loves the meat. He loves the bride. He all the way. Let me give him the best of it. 
because he had taken God and summarized him in his own interpretation, and therefore he can decide whatever to render unto God, and the rest will belong unto himself. That is called compromise, and that is called sin. Let me give you an illustration. Wayne, I need your help. Uh, Tando, can you get me that pole, that red pole there? Wayne, can you get me that board? Let's put it up here. All right. Thank you, Wayne. Tando, you can stay right here. I'll take the poll. So, right here, I'm going to draw a little thing. Right here. And I'm going to call it God's will. This is God's will right there at the center. And... Here comes Tando, representing all of humanity and all of us and the souls and everybody else. And then we're like, Tando, try and get to God's will. And, oh, whoops. He got close, but not quite, ne? Let's make a big, this is where Tando got. Right there. Let's make it an X. It's not bad. It's not bad. Really close. It's this much. Only missed by this much. He was told to destroy everything, but he destroyed most of it. He was told to live a life of purity, but he mostly generally lives a life of purity. He was told to stop lying, but he, he lies like Kangara. Significant figures. Who cares about these things? They're tiny. And he was told to be faithful. He's mostly faithful, but this tiny touch is just like God must understand. It's a little bit. So now, let's take this up down here. Thank you, Tando. So, I want you to stand where you were standing when you were aiming at this thing. Right here, all right? So this is where Tando was aiming, and this is where he got to. All right? Let's do a little science experiment and extrapolate Tando's aim that much. Hold that still. Let's move this a little bit further along. Ah, uh ah, -uh, you've moved it down. <laughs> it was up here. <laughs> so, we're here now. Where's God's will? Where's Tando off? He's off the chart. If we take this chart and move it to in, into, in, into eternity, how off is Tando? Now the word sin comes from archery. It means to miss the mark. This was the target and you missed. Doesn't matter how much if it's all extrapolated to eternity, it's very much. So there is no such thing as little sin or areas of compromise. Thank you, Tando. No such thing as little sin, areas of compromise. Oh, I'm getting better at that. That anointing has not fallen upon me. To be, oh, to be honest, all the time, uh-uh, I don't have that revelation. Sorry, brother, I've not, I'm not there in my relationship with God. I'm still journeying. To live a life of total purity. Ooh, uh-uh, I'm not there yet. When we make these little tiny compromises, they're all the same. They are all the same. What Uzzah did was a tiny, tiny, tiny little thing. Anything. But in God's eyes, in all of eternity, disobedience is disobedience. In all of eternity, all our little things all add up. So don't, don't sit and stand right here, including myself, and think that when we, we come before the, the holy God, he will sum up all our, the averages of our good and all the averages of our bad and say, you're okay, come here. Or oh, then you, you meant well. He is holy. 
There is no wrong with him. There is no blemish. 100%. Like in science, we know there's these things called standards, right, that you have to buy. They're really expensive. Like if you're supposed to buy acid, it's supposed to be like 100% pure acid. But in all honesty, it's never 100%. It's like 99.99999. You can never say for certain 100% that it's pure. Because, yeah, that's the world we live in. But with God all the time, every day, all day, standard is 100.000000%. And the truth with us is that we fall short. We constantly fall short. Galatians 6 verse 7, uh, verse 7 says, Do not be de- deceived. God cannot, uh, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. For all our missing and all our transgressions, we will reap what we sow. The fact that what happened to Uzzah does not happen to us right now is another one of our misunderstandings of who God is. We misunderstand why is it that we don't get struck dead? Why? Have you ever wondered why? Why is it that we all, because we're living in a time of grace, because God in his infinite love and his infinite justice, I think one of the best illustrations and explanations of the gospel is that I've ever heard was imagine if Wayne sent Bukosi to go buy a cold drink. Gave Bukosi the money, gave, him the, gave her the bottle and everything, and she ran off. For those of you that don't understand, back in the day, you used to take cool drink to the tuck shop to buy the bottle to go buy a cool drink. I was born before TikTok. <laughs> so Bukosi goes and she buys cool drinks. And then on the way back, she, she meets her friend, she plays around, the bottle falls, and it breaks. And then she comes back and is like, uh, uh, so what had happened was you had done send me to go get cool drink. But what had happened is ish, I just, uh, I walked into this little game, ne? It was, just, it was just a few friends, you know, we just played, and then oopsie, this thing fell over, now it's gone. And then Wayne's like, I forgive you. And then, oh, that's the end of it. Now, it could seem like, oh, wow, okay, he just got off scot-free. But who, 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 who gave the money to buy this cool drink? So who paid for this cool drink? Someone had to pay. Someone had to pay for the indiscretion. Someone had to pay. God in his infinite love and in his infinite form of justice made him who, was no, who, who knew no sin to be sin for us all so that we get to be reconciled to, back to him, so that we will learn how to live a life that honors him. Now, it's very easy to just go off and be like, um, you know, God has paid it all, so therefore let us continue living a life of sin because God will forever pay it off. And I'll try my best, but I'll get there eventually, but all of that. God has called us to live a life of holiness, and he has paid for us to live that life. And how do we get from a place of compromise to a place of holiness? All right, let's break that down. How do we do this? The first bit is that we need to know who God is. Understand who God is. There's this preaching illustration that, I, you know, like when people, uh, when I was, you know, listening to sermons and all the Waynes and the Langas and the Mark Simpsons and all of these guys would preach about the Father heart of God and then how much they love their children and how great this illustration of trust and family and all of that was, and they would preach about that, and I would sit there and be like, ooh, I guess when you have kids, now there's a certain revelation that God gives you that some of us single non-kids having people don't truly understand. Until I heard this other sermon, and this guy said, it is not that we look at our experience 
to define our relationship with God. We do not look at how we parent and how we were parented to define how God parents us. We look at how God has parented us to define our experience. So we do not take what has happened in our life and superimpose it unto God, but we take what God has done to us and we superimpose it into our lives. We look at lives through the, expect- through the eyes of relationship of who God is when we know Him, and that's how we look at the world. It is totally different than from the looking at the world and then we take certain things and we superimpose it unto God. Psalm uh, 119 verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Hiding the word of God in your heart is different to just knowing about it. Hiding it is believing it, understanding it, and embracing it as a total authority over your life so that sin will not be close to you because you know and you know and you believe who God is. If we truly believe that God is caring, we would not be busy making alternative arrangements for ourselves. If we believe that God has our best interest at heart, imagine your grandmother's love, imagine your mother's love, Imagine your boyfriend's love, your high school sweetheart, your primary school sweetheart, whoever has given you any form of love. It pales in comparison to who God is. It cannot begin to describe, it it can't. Once we can catch a glimpse of that and we live in a reality of that, sin loses its flavor. Compromise just doesn't taste right. You know, it's like when you've had all your life, you've been going through life eating um, pick and pay and shoprite cake. <laughs> That's your experience, just like pick and pay and shoprite. Then one day it's your birthday, Auntie Claire bakes you a cake. And then you taste it. And then you realize that cakes are not the same. There are just cakes, and then there's cake. You will never taste cake the same again. She ruined it. She ruined you for, she will ruin you for cake. You will never go to to, to pick and pay cake. You will never eat a snowball cake the same way again because you have tasted something better, and you've experienced something greater. When we experience the glory and the power of God and we live in that revelation, He will ruin you for sin. The problem is we don't want to get close. We don't want to get close. We do the same thing the Israelites did and we're like, we send Moses, go, go, you go. We'll wait here and you'll come tell us. How did that cake taste like? I bet it was juicy, eh? Mm, don't tell me too much. I'm not, I can't handle it. <laughs> the invite is for every single one of us to ascend the holy mountain and behold the glory of God for ourselves. <laughs> Second and last way to stay away from sin is quite simple. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. When Jesus left this earth, he said, it is good that I leave, though I will send you a helper who will guide you to all truth. When the Holy Spirit dwells on the inside of us, it's like we get a new GPS. It's like your conscience just goes from little what what to super saiyan. It's like sin becomes like, you know, when you're about to sin, there's something that goes, Kameha. <laughs> you feel that fire on the inside of you because God deposits himself on the inside of us. And when all that God, Jesus says, I will fill you with the Spirit. Look at what happened to Peter. Denied Jesus, was a, you know, 
slashing people's ears off, being all rascally and all of that, swearing and doing whatever. And because between swearing and cutting people's ears off and, and, and denying Jesus, to him preaching and, you know, him being radical and on fire for God, there was nothing that happened. He didn't go to swearer's rehab. He did not go to anger management class. He did not um, understand, you know, the, you know, the full consequences of lies and all of that. What happened? He just got filled with the Spirit. That's what we need. We need the Holy Spirit to come dwell on the inside of us. He will guide you to all truth. When we feel like we're wrestling with things, He will be the peace that guides you. When we feel like our faith comes short, when we come into His presence and says, God, fill me up once more. He is the living water that bubbles on the inside of us. He's our source of life. I bet when you started out, when we started the sermon, you were thinking, oh, we're talking about holiness. You're about, we are about to go off on you and tell you, stop sinning, do not sin. Do not sin. The thing is, what we do is we try to do not sin in our own power. I can do this. Come on. No cigarettes today. Scripture says, do not get drunk on wine, but get drunk in the Spirit. Let God empower you to live a life of holiness. When we are filled with the Spirit, it's quite funny because, you know, like, uh, I don't know about you, but most of us, it happened like this. We were never trying to be good. Like, we were never trying to be good. If you were trying to be good, yay, well done, congratulations. But most of us were never trying to be good. We just encountered this God person, and then we encountered this Holy Spirit person, and then, like, certain things began to change, and that you realize that certain things vex his spirit in the inside of you. And you're like, I can't keep that and keep you inside. What can I keep? Shop uh, uh, rhino cake, wool, uh, woolies cake, rhino cake, woolies cake. No cake. <laughs> we move on, we find other things, and we're like, pick and pay cake, Woolies cake. Pick and pay cake, Woolies cake. Pick and pay cake. <laughs> the more we get into those moments, the holier you get. From glory to glory, we are being constantly transformed into the image of Christ. As, I, as we wrap up, there's this favorite little passage of like tiny hymn that I like. It says, set your eyes upon Jesus. Look full at his wonderful, wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely thin in the light of his glory and praise. I believe our problem is that we're not doing a lot of setting our eyes. We're not doing a whole lot of beholding. We're not doing a whole lot of, God, let me search for you. What does the Scripture say you are? Let Scripture define your experience of God. Don't let your experiences define your experience of God. Let Him tell you who He is. Experience his fullness. Romans 12 says, Do not be conformed to the image of, to, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of the mind, so that you may taste and see his good and pleasant will. Can we all stand? I'd like us to take this moment to repent. And when I say repent, I'm not saying pull out your list of all your sins. You can do that later. But for now, I want you to repent for not relying on the one true source, which is God. 
I want us to repent for setting our eyes on other things apart from God. I want us to repent for believing lies and creating little idols and little false images and little avatars of who God is instead of looking at the true God and beholding Him. Father, we come to you this morning, Lord God. We humble ourselves, Lord Jesus, and we declare that we are sinners and we fall short of your glory. We thank you, Jesus, that you died in our place. God, that you made it possible for us to enter into your grace. Lord, we repent for not seeking you. Lord, we repent for limiting you to our experience, Lord Jesus. Lord, we repent for belittling your power. Lord, we repent for belittling your grace. Lord, we repent for belittling your love for us. Lord, we repent for our disobedience. Lord, we repent for finding broken systems that could not sustain, for looking unto other lovers to fill us, to looking to substitutes, for embracing things, other things than you. Lord, we come before you and we lay it all down. And we say it fails and it fails in comparison to who you are. That it falls short, it falls short from your glory, it falls short from your grace. Heavenly Father, this morning, I just pray that you fill us up once again. Holy Spirit, I pray that you fall on us once again, Lord God. Lord, you said you will lead us to all truth, and I pray that your spirit may fall this morning and open our eyes, Lord God. Open the eyes of our inner man to recognize who you are, to see you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for tuning in. For more messages like these and other resources, you can visit our website at endurban.org. Remember to subscribe to our podcast channel to stay up to date with the latest sermon. Be blessed.